Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and how we can better understand people different from ourselves. Every episode, I speak to someone with some role in shaping our public conversations, from journalists to poets to faith leaders, from YouTube stars to playwrights to visual artists. And I ask them to reflect on what is sacred to them in the broadest sense, their own approach to how they use their platform or their voice, and what they've learned about the many ways we can, if we're not careful, divide and even dehumanize each other. Guests come from a huge range of perspectives on politics, religion, and everything else. Many of which, of course, are different from my own positions. But rather than challenge them, I'm seeking to understand how they've got to where they are. I have a hunch that listening deeply is always a good place to start. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a review or share an episode. I particularly like hearing from you on email or one of our many social media channels, so do get in touch. This week, we've got a conversation to share with you that I had with Jonathan Peugeot. I actually went to check his pronunciation, having checked it with him and the official YouTube, um, you know, the short clip where they read out a word to tell you how to pronounce it. There's a comment from him underneath. It's the only comment saying this is a dumb way to pronounce my name. So I think it's Jonathan Peugeot and I hope that I've got that right. Jonathan is one of the only professional icon carvers in North America, which means that he creates religious art in stone or wood. And I'd really encourage you to go check it out. It is beautiful. He's also a writer and a speaker with a very successful YouTube channel called The Symbolic World. We spoke about the culture of contemporary art, his conversion to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, the ways the left and the right both dehumanize people, and his friendship with Jordan Peterson. I really hope you enjoy listening. As usual, there's some reflections from me at the end. Jonathan, we are going to go right in the deep end with a question that you don't normally get asked day to day at a dinner party or on the bus, which is very deliberate uh, rejection of small talk. And it's about what is sacred to you. And I have a feeling that you're someone for whom this word will be more comfortable than it is for some people. Um, But it's really, I hope, a generative question that you can take in any direction that you like. I would bracket out your family. Um, And the origins of the question, for me, there's um, uh, a sociologist called Durkheim, who's written a lot about sacred values and sacred ideas on a kind of collective scale. I came actually at it via an anthropologist called Scott Atran, who uses it in peace building and reconciliation and says, when we can acknowledge these non-instrumental values in each other, when we can get beyond the things that drive us around comfort and convenience and the sort of economic rational actor theory, we get to something truer that helps us understand each other better. People have said all manner of things to me about what they hold sacred. Um, But what bubbles up for you with that question? What might be some sacred values or some things that you've tried to build your life around that are precious? So I would say my answer might actually be far more boring than than what you expect in the sense that I really have completely embraced a more traditional vision of what is sacred. That is, I really see sacrality as a form of participation in something which is beyond you and and something which is beyond you, but also binds you to, to that transcendent, but also to the people that are acknowledging and participating in the sacred as well. And so I really do see something let's say like the Eucharist in the Christian tradition as being the root of sacred participation. Um, And so I am a, I'm a liturgical artist. I make images, I make sacred images for churches and for people. And I am very much in love with that language, with that tradition, you know, with the, 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 the sacred space of a church and how it's set up in a three tiered structure and how it reflects also our own inner sacred space that we have to also be attentive to and uh, and come into. And so ultimately, I could say that I believe that the sacred is something like the place where the transcendent meets the mundane. It's the place where God encounters the world. I'm just going to pause on that um, hefty and, and beautiful 
sentence, the sacred is the place where something meets the mundane. I don't want to forget it. The transcendent meets the mundane. We're going to get back to art and icon carving and imagery. But first, I just want to get a sense of where you've come from. Where did your story start? Give me a little picture of little Jonathan running around. And what were the big ideas around political, philosophical, religious that were formative for you? So I come from a something, I mean, I guess a very strange background in the sense that I'm, my first language is French. I'm from Quebec. And, uh, Quebec used to be the most Catholic place in the world, possibly. And in the 1960s and 70s, like many other places in the world, everything just exploded. And the church within one or two generations was emptied. Many people became secular, just became, you know, became more uh, cosmopolitan. But then some people also discovered Protestant evangelical uh, Christianity as a kind of breath of fresh air, as a new authenticity to their faith. And that is what happened to my parents. So my parents converted from Catholicism into evangelical Christianity as a really as a kind of as this new discovery of scripture and a, a new way of seeing God. Uh, and they, And so I grew up with my parents. My father was a Baptist minister. And so I grew up for many years uh, very much involved in the the Protestant church. And I have amazing stories, wonderful people. I don't have really have many complaints about the type of experiences I had with that, with the church. But then when I reached my twenties and just like everybody, you know, I went to university and I started to read more widely to read more philosophical ideas, to read from other traditions. And I started to feel um, as if the, the the Protestant church that I grew up with was was lacking something, and I didn't quite know how to formulate it at first. This is a process that happened with my brother at the same time. So we started reading philosophy, different strange authors, reading also texts from other traditions and and other mystical traditions, and really falling in love with a more mystical vision of of spirituality, but also kind of being annoyed that we knew we were Christian. I, I knew I was a Christian, but I felt like, why is it that I can read some Sufi mystic and just be astounded by what I see there? But then I'd, I'm a Christian, but we don't have that. And that's when I realized that we do. In fact, it's just that I didn't know about all the amazing mystical texts that have been written in the Christian tradition. And so reading uh, Meister Eckhart at the outset and reading Jacob Böhm and then ultimately moving all the way back into St. Gregory of Nyssa and Sent it from the Syrian, all these these powerful early uh, mystical fathers. Um, I came to be completely reconciled with my own Christianity, and ultimately that led me to Orthodoxy. I want to hear more about that, but I'm going to try and keep some um, chronology because having a dad who's a Baptist minister, how was it presumably as a very artistic, creative child with this draw to making images as a child is that a fair assumption yeah definitely i was really an artist you know very from very young i identified i remember in third grade just thinking that that's my main identity is being an artist so i know you're right there was an issue with that for me and it wasn't it didn't come from my family my my family my father was a my father was he is my father and my mother are people who are actually quite intellectually honest and open and and always in a mode willing to learn if there's something to learn. And so, uh, but let's say imbibed in the culture and the general culture, there was what we could call a, let's say a kind of implicit suspicion about images. For sure, you could make images in a secular context, but there really was no theological justification. And it was, there was no way to integrate image making within the church. And so, which I, at first I kind of just accepted, but then ultimately when I be, when I was in studying uh, fine art at the university, I really was trying to reconcile that in my own work. So my work became very odd. It was, it was contemporary art, but it was mostly contemporary art trying to deal with two problems. One which was how to make art as a, as a Protestant and then also how to make contemporary art as a Christian because contemporary art is so cynical and so... You know, it's always a comment upon a comment upon a comment. And there's something, you know, there's something about uh, kind of aloofness about contemporary art. And I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make something direct. I wanted to make something real. But it seemed inaccessible to me. And so actually, so when I finished 
my university degree, I did really well. Like I finished first in my class and, and I, it's, I got a workshop and I started to, to, you know, I got a studio and just like all the artists get these big studios with friends. And I was for sure, I thought I was going to be an artist, but at some point it became so, the contradictions became so alarming to me that I couldn't deal with it anymore. And I actually decided that I was done with art. I just threw, I threw away all my art and I, and I told my wife, I just got married and I told my wife, that's it, I'm done. I'm never making art again. She just laughed because she knew that was a lie. She knew that it wasn't true. There's no way. Um, and then ultimately what happened is I, I discovered, I did, part of my spiritual discovery in reading the text was also discovering the images and discovering this beautiful language of that Christian art, this traditional language of art that, that Christians had developed organically, you know, until maybe like up to the year 1200, there was this universal language all over the church. If you had gone to a church in England or a church in Palestine or, you know, anywhere, you would have been able to recognize what you were seeing. There was a, there was an organic whole and I fell in love with that language. And that's what I, that's what I ended up embracing. I want to just pause a moment on the culture of contemporary art, because you've, you wrote this line that really helped sum up there's some things for me. You talked about contemporary art being steeped in irony and cynicism mixed with elitism and a fetishization of the art object. And it seemed impossible to make something that was true, not only in its vision, but its embodiment and its very purpose. And I have talked to various guests about the difficulty of creativity about our deepest things and our most precious things and how... You know, I bemoan, yes. I'm more literarily leaning and I bemoan the difficulty. We have Marilyn Robinson and we have Graham Greene. <laughs> like, and then what, like maybe 50 years back and you get, and you get to Dostoevsky, but like, there's like decades pass <laughs> with no one writing serious art literature yeah. that takes the possibility of God seriously. And when we, it's tried to be, when, when, as you know, when it's tried to be, when visual arts wrestle with it, it either goes straight to something quite dark, quite aloof, mm. quite ironic, or if anything that you're trying to do, which feels too straight on, feels kitsch or primary colors or... yeah. The, 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 uh, my experience of my faith is like an old master and the visual representations and the cultural representations of it are not. And yeah. I would just love to hear you talk about what it, why, why is that? It's like the Simone Weil thing about like imaginary good is boring. Real good is powerful. Imaginary evil is attractive. Real good is banal. Why? Why is that? Help me understand. <laughs> So when you read scripture, scripture has everything in it. And the characters, although the stories, especially in the Old Testament, although the stories are succinct and they're short and there's their light on description, every single character in the Old Testament has, has a complexity and has a, a, a kind of dual aspect to them. They all have light and dark sides. There's no one in the Old Testament, uh, even in the New Testament, except for Christ, there's no one that doesn't have a dark side and have some strangeness to their character. And I think what happens with many Christian artists, especially if we're talking about literary uh, artists, is that they're so pressed by the morality question that they, they, they think that Christianity is morality. Christianity is not morality. Religion is not morality. It's not that it's, it's, not that it's immoral. But it, morality is downstream from what Christianity really is, which is this deep revelation about how reality exists in God. And not just revelation in a, in a just a conceptual way, but a deep participation. And so I think that if Christian artists want to create something powerful, they have to be able to steep themselves in that. And the other problem is that Christians don't know. We've been ruined by, we've been ruined by a, a kind of German Protestant, uh, you know, uh, thinking where we have eliminated everything strange and idiosyncratic about Christian tradition. We've, we've dismissed it all. And so now we're stuck with what we're stuck with boring stories, you know, but 
the, our whole tradition is so rich with crazy medieval myths that you can't fathom, that you don't, that are completely amoral in a good way and that have all the complexity of human interaction. And so I think that people really need to dive back into our own stories. We have all these stories that nobody knows. Everybody's forgotten the stories. Now, I'm, I'm, we're talking now, we're doing this series called Universal History with a, with a friend of mine, and we're trying to help people dive back into these, these legends, you know, these crazy ideas that, that Alexander the Great is somehow related to, you know, King Arthur. And, and these are these, 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 wild, uh, these wild stories that, that we have. They're wonderful. And I think that people who who explore them will find. I think right now there's some interesting, so I don't know if you know uh, Vodoliskin, uh, who wrote Loris. Like this, this book is Dostoevsky, is Dostoevsky level writing. And it is a Christian author who is writing about, you know, there, Loris is about a, a basically a medieval monk who becomes a faith healer, but then has this entire crazy story. And the story is even postmodern. He transgresses time. There's, it, he, uses, uh, he uses anachronism in the story. And so he's actually pulling in postmodern structures in order to tell the beautiful, powerful story. There, there's Paul Kingsnorth right now. Uh, and so there, there's, I think there's an interesting moment where we can dive back into the, into the messiness of, of, the, of the great Christian tradition. You obviously think a lot about myths and symbols and a kind of different texture of imagination to what we're generally fed in a kind of liberal Western world. And you've written a little bit about how spending some time in Africa, particularly in Kenya, was really formative um, for that for you. I know after you're kind of like, I will, I will uh, give up art. I will renounce art. Um, you moved to Kenya to work with a fair trade organization, working with the artisans. What was going on there for you, both in terms of your faith and this, the call of the artistic practice that you've now come to? I mean, it was a really, it was a strange and interesting time because I guess in the, in the spiritual crisis that I was going to, going through, you know, one of the problems I had was the purpose of what I was doing. You know, I, I was working, uh, I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful job, but it was fine, but I was working for a project management company, you know, developing pedagogical material or whatever. And so it was just felt as if this is not what I want to do. Uh, and so my wife had been for, she really had wanted to do mission work, you know, humanitarian work. And so I, it was really her impetus to, to, to do that. And I didn't know, like, I was just like, well, I'd rather do that than do to do this office work. So, so we decided to, to apply for this position and we got it. And at first it was in Congo, actually, we were four years in Congo and then three years in Kenya. And it was, it was wonderful for me. It, it, it broke down my, the way that I understand art, you know, because it, it. The, the art world is so fetishized. The idea of the art object is a complete anomaly. It is so strange to think of these objects that have no functionality in the world, but that somehow justify their existence. But what I discovered in Africa and at that time in general was the idea, the beauty of purposeful art, the beauty of a chair, of a well-made chair or a, of an object that is integrated into the cultural language, but also has a function, you know, an African headrest or a, uh, all the, the manner in which these objects were, would use the iconography of their people, but then also integrated into daily life. And uh, then I, that's what made me fall even more in love with the language of iconography and the possibilities of creating images that were not just made to put up on the wall, but would participate in people's spiritual life, would participate in the life of the church. Um, and it's also the, there's also a kind of disdain for, in the, in the contemporary art world, there's almost like a disdain for capacity, like a disdain for actual artistic capacity. And then in Africa, that all broke down because sitting with with guys under a mango tree, you know, just hacking away at these these pieces of wood was a way to to re-embody, let's say, art practice for myself. And so it was really a good transition. I I didn't make much when I was there, only at the very end. While I was there the whole time, I just didn't have the energy and, and mind power to, to make art. And at the very end, I discovered this beautiful stone in Kenya called Kisi Stone. And it was really like a muse that was calling to me because it was so beautiful and so 
subtle in its colors and also in its capacity to hold detail and everything. And that's when I started carving icons uh, more seriously. And you had parents who had been Catholic and converted to Protestants and become Baptists. Eastern, in fact, could you say a little bit, because some listeners wouldn't be not at all familiar with what orthodox means in the context in which you're talking about it. What is uh, orthodoxy in your sense? And how did you... How did you come to convert to it? So a good way to under, I mean, it, simple historical. So, so in, in the, the great church, let's say from the very beginning, there were a few schisms and, uh, you know, there were several schisms in the fourth century, which produced the Coptic church and the Syrian churches, you know, that what we call the Nestorian churches. They don't like that name, but yeah, anyways, so there was, so there were some schisms and then there's what, you know, we call the great schism in the year, uh, you know, 1055. And that schism is what produced what we now call the Orthodox churches. And so there's the Church of the West, which which was Rome, and then all of Western Europe. And then there were the four bishops, uh, the four other bishops that were, uh, let's say, Jerusalem, Antioch, and uh, Constantinople. And I'm forgetting one. So anyways, but it was it was basically all those churches, and then ultimately Moscow as well, later uh, and then other countries like Georgia and Bulgaria, all the countries we know. And so the, the, there was a split in the church, but that's not the reason why I was interested in, in orthodoxy. But the reason why I became very interested in it is because, to, in my impression, it had maintained much of the mystical fathers and most of the mystical understanding of Christianity. They had shied away from the more transactional idea of you know salvation, you know, God sends His Son to die so that He can cover your sins, and then if you believe in Him, you go to heaven. Like that kind of transactional relationship, there's there's just none of that in the Orthodox Church. It is more about a transformational transformational process of the person and the body of Christ into deification. And so I really fell in love with that vision of Christianity, and I. And I also fell in love with the language of the liturgy and the language of the, because it's all, it's really think about it like a giant poem, right? It's so a giant poem that happens in the, the liturgy, but also happens in the images, in the music, and so in the architecture. And so it is almost like this cosmic dance that you participate in when you, you're, when you're in the liturgical life. And I really, like I said, fell in love with that. I felt like the, like, again, this 19th century thinking had, had reduced liturgy to superstition. People had, had thought that litur- liturgy was just superstition and so slowly evacuated all of the richness of that dance that we participated. Um, and so those are all the things that kind of led me to to become Orthodox, really. This is a very personal question, so feel free to dodge it. But how was that for your wife and your parents, that process? It was difficult. It was very difficult. You know, actually, my wife never converted to Orthodoxy. She's still, I would say, generally Protestant, I guess, is the good way to understand it. Um, And my parents, my father, like I said, you know, my parents are very open and, and, and intellectually curious. And so my father actually said, well, all right, I'm going to find out what this thing is. And so he started reading the Church Fathers. He probably read way more Orthodox theology and Church Fathers than I did. Uh, and he also fell in love with the mystical language of Orthodoxy. And he really, there's a there's an entire mystical practice of prayer uh, called the Jesus Prayer and, and Hesychasm. He just really fell in love with that. And also the, the early fathers and the approach of, the, he's a psychologist. And so there's some wonderful books of how to integrate Christian cosmology or Christian, Christian practice into psychotherapy that happened within the Orthodox Church. And he really enjoyed that as well. But he never, he still doesn't, he's not a big fan of the liturgy. But so, but it's not a, it's not a hostile relationship at all. It's, it's actually, you know, they, they came this year to Easter and they, you know, they, they came to the baptism of my child. And so they, they, they're still Protestant, but it's a, it's a rich discussion, I would say. Great. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and to, I want to kind of get a sense of the threads that you have been pulling on because you've had the kind of artistic reawakening, this spiritual shift or reencounter, however you want to describe it. And then what you're kind of known for now is speaking about ideas. You're, the, the, your YouTube channel is called The Symbolic World and you, you're, you're – 
set of ideas around myth and symbolism and a kind of challenge to a dominant liberal understanding of who we are that has been so formed by a kind of scientific post-enlightenment thinking. How how did they begin to crystallize? What was the impetus for you to be like, actually, in the intersection of art and faith, there are some ideas that are more, are broadly very relevant? So this is something that happened with my brother a long time ago, 20 years ago. You know, when we were going through this kind of spiritual questioning, although like I'm framing it really as a, as a personal story and also as a related to art and related to my own personal spiritual life, it was also a... A, a philosophical question, a metaphysical question about how the world actually exists. And, and I think that that is what really led both of us into viewing scripture and viewing these stories as not just a bunch of stories, but as really something like templates for reality and, and things that reveal the manner in which the world presents itself to us. Actually, not, not in a scientific way, in, a, in the banal scientific way we think of, but rather in the way the world presents itself to us, more like phenomenology or more, you know, like this idea that consciousness is related to the manner in which reality um, comes together in, in our experience. And so once you get that, then you realize that, so once you, let's say, read the, the stories in the Bible through the lens of, the notion of the conscious experience and of the conscious viewer, then everything snaps together. You're not trying to find scientific descriptions there. You're not trying to, you know, and you don't actually have to make excuses for it. It's just not what it's about. And that's not only fine, it's better because it precedes the science. You know, the description of the world in Genesis is an actual description of how the world exists. It's the best description you'll ever find, but it's not a scientific description. It's the, it's the description of how the world exists with man at its pinnacle and man as the eyes that is viewing this this, this order of creation that is laying itself in, uh, in front of them. And so once we started to understand that, then we realized that we can, that this pattern of being that is in Genesis, in Exodus, but is the structure of the tabernacle, the structure of a church, it's the structure of your experience. You can use that, not use, but you can enter into that structure and then shine light on anything you want, on movies on on stories on political phenomena on you know and so that's what i've been really doing is trying to help people see the world through meaning and and understand that meaning is not arbitrary the, the world lays itself out in patterns in 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 a kind of dance there's it's like waves and it, it's not arbitrary at all and so the world is if you really see it you'll understand that the world is actually a very magical place it's actually quite full of magic and the the fact that we try to escape like let's say take the magic out of the world right this demythologization that people have tried to do is it's over right now and it's and it's finished even in scientific terms it's finished i've been doing i've been having many discussions with you know top world level cognitive scientists and they all are coming back to a structure of representation of the world, which looks like, you know, hierarchies of angels, which looks like, you know, the, the, these, these fractal structures that look like a, an ancient temple or that look like something, something that, that would be this medieval village. That's actually the manner in which the world is experienced. And one of the reasons why we're so alienated is because we, because we've tried to eliminate meaning out of the world. We live in these anti-human worlds. We live in, in these anti-human cities, in these anti-human spaces. And that's part of the, the, what brings about the alienation. But in a way, it also creates the darkness out of which the light will appear because everybody is so, so crushed and so alienated that the, 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 the re-enchantment of the world has become inevitable and it's, and it's just happening. So, I I think you're right. I'm seeing a lot of um, a sense that the wind the winds are changing. That there is suddenly, I've always been the sort of strange token out Christian in idearsy spaces, and um, I wrote about it recently for Unheard. The number, and they are almost entirely men of people sidling up to me and going, suddenly this Christianity thing looks more interesting than I thought it was. 
from the left and the right. And the left is very yeah. driven by ecological crisis and fear and a sense that actually they thought if they threw themselves at the project with enough love and hard work, they could fix it. And the like disappointment and horror and exhaustion is just yeah. bringing them to a place of like, is there something I can surrender to? You know, is there something bigger than me and our failures? And then on the right, it's coming from a different thing. And I think much more driven by this sense of a meaning crisis and institutional crisis and um, isolation and, and breakdown. Um, and some of it, it does overlap with the cluster of thinkers that you have found yourself part of. And I was thinking as I was prepping this interview, I don't even know how to describe it. So I'm going to, you know, you're doing a seminar on scripture uh, with Jordan Peterson right now, somewhere in America. You know, there is, a, there, is a, there is a cluster of commentators that have been in conversation together very visibly over the last, say, five years. And some, yeah. you know, they get... It, there was this phrase, the intellectual dark web thrown around a few years ago. And that how, how do you describe the conversations that you find yourself part of and what has emerged in the last few years around that? I don't want to label it for no, you. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there has been a radical shift that has happened. And it's, it's something, it really is like a... a it really is like a Kairos moment and there's no other way to say it. You know, I don't think anybody's completely responsible for it. I think it's also a, a pattern of a societal pattern where you reach, you reach breaking points. You know, the new atheists were the last wave of, of secularism, but that wave was so stupid. Like the, the new atheist, the, the new atheist argument is so pathetic that it's almost as if you make Christianity and religion so stupid and idiotic and ridiculous that then any glimmer of pattern that appears will look like a miracle to people. And it's like, there's a lot, there's actually a lot more than that folks. So, so, so just, so, so Jordan Peterson is, I think is for sure largely part of that. Jordan Peterson appears on the scene and then starts to, to talk about religion through perception in the very similar way. That's why I'm friends with them is because we were already talking in many very similar ways. Um, through this notion of attention, right? The inevitability of attention, the inevitability of, of patterns. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, he really made the new atheists on the put them on the defensive in ways that we had never seen. And so it changed the landscape. And so now people are far less aggressive about their anti-religious uh, speaking and and it's very difficult for them to be as as aggressive as we kind of see things also fall apart around us. It's like okay, well, all right, we did what you said. We created this secular world, and now what? Right now, what? what now what? It's it's not working, guys. It's it's not it's not it's not better. So so I think all of that is is coming together. But I I'm really to me it's such an exciting time. It's such an exciting time because. You know, I'll give an example. Like I had a discussion recently with a, a, a wonderful conversation partner, John Ravaki, who is a professor of uh, cognitive science at the University of Toronto, and and Jordan Hall, who is a, who, who's a businessman and is this high level businessman and and working on all these systems thinking and stuff. And we were talking about angels and demons, and it was absolutely normal. There was no cringe. Nobody was afraid. It was just like this is the these are the words that were given to us to describe these realities we're realizing are inevitable. And so why not you just use those words? Why are you trying to find new words for things that you're realizing are the same? And the same, I had a discussion with Don Hoffman, who's a cognitive science at U University of California. Um, and the same thing at some point, I was like I was just kept using the language of of saints and angels and and it didn't bother him a bit because he's like no you're right there needs to be a stacked structure of being there's no way that agency is the idea that agency stops at human at human agency even from a materialist point of view is completely ridiculous it's ridiculous why would human beings be the top of agency in even in a materialist system and so it's like no there's agency above humans how do we fr formulate that and so and so it's just wonderful. I just think it's so exciting. And to realize also 
the sense of participation, like the need for participation, and even the idea of worship. Now I'm seeing people start to realize that actually, if the world is based on attention, then the thing you attend to the most will causally, let's say, cascade back down onto your world. And so what do you worship? Like, what's your God really is what it ends up being. And so maybe there's a reason why Christians have a God of infinite love that's the source of all things. It's not arbitrary, right? It's not just it's not just things people made up for fun. It's like if you submit yourself to the source of all reality, which is also infinite love, that's pretty good. You know, that's pretty good for how the world is going to, to lay itself out, I think. Yeah. Um, I am intrigued by the gender question in all this. Like seeing sudden spiritual openness generally around, amongst middle-aged men, the conversations that you're in, mainly male commentators. And that can, you know, that can mean it has slightly sharp edges. Like Jordan Peterson, about half of what he says, I'm like, wow, wise, interesting. About half of what he says, I'm like, ah. as a woman, I find that quite hard, um, which is fine. Um, what, what are your reflections on why that is? What do you think is going on? So I think that one of the reasons why it's male driven is that at least for now, it is framed as meaning as a meaning problem, which is that I think that that because men tend to be focused on on goals, tend to be need that that type of of, of goal or goal driven action, you could say, then recently men have just falling into despondency, right? They're, you know, the, the the cliche of the the overweight guy who lives in his parents' basement. I mean, that's not just a cliche, right? It's based on 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 a lot of men in their twenties and thirties that have that are just struggling to find purpose. And so I think that that's why it's kind of happening that way. And it's also, let's be honest, it it is in some ways a reaction to it's a something like feminism gone wild. Like it is also a reaction, which is to re-find the, the, the purpose of masculinity. But I think also, at least for myself, like if you watch a lot of my videos, you'll see that I'm actually not as much like Jordan. Like Jordan really tends to focus on the masculine, but I actually, a lot of the things I talk about are about the mystery of the feminine and about the, the mystery of feminine symbolism. And I think that there's also definitely, there's also definitely a need to recapture the power of of what feminine symbolism is. Um, and I think one of the problems of the meaning crisis and even the reality of feminism is not arbitrary that, you know, modern, the modern world, post the, the enlightenment and post enlightenment world was so masculine in its emphasis, right? It's like value is only in production. Value is only in things that are public value is only in, in, in these, this, this strength that, and we also, even in terms of Protestantism, we just totally threw the, the mother of God out the window. And so there, where, what's going, like, why would you want to be a woman in that context? Like, why would you not just want to, to, to act like men or to, to want to capture what, what the masculine is? And I think that's often what feminism is. It's like a, a, the women's desire to capture the, what masculinity is, but then we discount the most some of the most powerful things that exist like the feminine symbolism is so powerful the only difficulty is that it's somehow it's secret it's implied it's suggested and so it's difficult even in when i talk about it it's difficult because if you make the feminine too explicit you're dis you're dis, you're un denaturing it and so you always have to to move around and and point and 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 suggest and so but i think that that's part of also of what needs to happen as well. We need to rediscover like the, the very, the, the deep well, like of power that the feminine is, uh, without that, the world is going to dry up. I know in some ways the world is actually far more, still very, very masculine, masculine, like AI and in the internet and, and surveillance and, you know, these, this, the lack, the disappearance of the private life, you know, all of that is not, this is really a, a hyper-masculine, uh, move, let's say. I wonder also if there's something around actually women never got quite so disconnected from story from from embodiment right No you're right no I think you're I think you're right and I, yeah hopefully yeah hopefully that 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 
I think, but I, I, when I think about it, I think you're probably right because I think that one of the problems we have also, even, even myself is that I, that we look to the public, right? And so what happens is that you look to the public and what you see are the women who are extremely public. And so therefore it's normal that they will also have mas- more masculine traits. Like it's just, it's just inevitable because in order to function in public space, you have to, you have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to have a certain kind of line and focus, but all the, like the real feminine happens, still continues to happen everywhere and all the time, you know? And, and so I think that that's probably something that I haven't thought about, but it's probably true also. And how do you, how do you think of your vocation? Because even 10 years ago, someone having such a strong public voice via YouTube just wasn't a thing, right? It's a podcast about people with some kind of public voice and how they think about how they use that voice and how we build empathy. How, um, cards on the table, I'm always interested in kind of reconciliation. It's one of the sort of key theological concepts that's precious to me. And whether I'm talking to a communist or Wherever someone sits, I always want to hear how they are both experiencing and navigating the incredibly deep division that is mm. driving us further and further apart. How, how we both call out what we think is really problematic in the other's team, whoever they may be, yeah. but don't accidentally worsen the dehumanizing pattern that we've got into. And, you know, that it, it, listeners will know that, you know, some, some of the voices in the spaces that you've been, have sometimes been accused of that. I still don't know what I think about it. Yeah. And many of the voices in whatever you want to call the yeah. progressive left equivalent also do that. Like everyone seems to be continually tempted into a contemptuous dehumanizing posture with people that we disagree with. Yeah. I'd love to just hear you reflect on that really personally. If I totally to. agree. I agree completely. And I, and it's, I do have a position, right? I'm clearly a more conservative person. Like I don't hide that, but I, I am also a, a very artistic person and I grew up, you know, I went to college with, with the most lefty type people. Like I, I'm also in some many ways, very attuned to the question of, of, let's say the sensibilities of the left at the same time. And so I've tried to avoid getting to the culture war myself. And I know, like you said, that there are many of those that are kind of in this conversation that are far more active on that, on that front. But I just really just try to do what I can do. Um, so one of the things that I've, I've done a few videos I've done about this is to try to show the manner in which we dehumanize on both sides, but really structurally, like it's not just a, the reason why people don't see it is because it's very different. It's different structurally. So the, the conservative type, let's say the right winger will tend to dehumanize in space in terms of identity. So they tend to dehumanize the, the stranger. That is like the, that is the natural the natural default, right? So they'll tend to dehumanize that, which is not us. We tend to exclude in that way. And that is really a danger that the right has to be attentive to and be careful to, and especially as Christians to understand that the stories we have in scripture, stories like the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, stories about the Canaanite woman and the Samaritan woman, all of these, there's so many stories in the story of Christ where Christ is reaching out and showing the proper relationship with that, which is, strange, let's say. And so, so we need to be attentive to that. Now the left wingers, they, they don't see it, but they, they do something like dehumanize in time. They tend to dehumanize that which came before them. And so if, if the conservative will look at the, you know, let's say at the, this idea, let's say the idea that happened in the UK, like the idea of the Irish ape, like the idea that the, those that are on those fringes, right, they're animals, they're, 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 they're less than human, they're the missing link of that kind of idea. Then the left-wing person does that in time. They say, all oh, those, those people before us, they were more, they were dumber. And, and, and if you want to insult someone, t- say they're regressive, say that they're closer to the apes. That's what they're saying. They're saying the same thing. 
They're saying the people they're you're closer to the Neanderthals and I'm more advanced and I'm more progressive. And so the, it's the, still dehumanization. It's it's the exact same form of dehumanization. It's just that because it happens differently, it's easy to see the other ones. It's easy to to say, well, all the right wing people they 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 look they hate Mexicans, whatever in the U.S. And it's like, okay, that is true that that can happen. But it's like you think that anybody who still believes in God is a complete idiot. So. I don't know what to tell you, right? So it's the same thing. It's just one is in time and one is in space. So, 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 so I think that at least understanding that this is something that we have a tendency towards and also understanding that it's universal. One of the things that I learned living in Africa was just how universal dehumanization is. It is, it is not a, it's not a European characteristic, right? It's not a, it's not just a white person's problem. It is you, it's everywhere, everywhere that identity exists, the danger of dehumanization exists with it. So any tribe, any group, anything, anywhere in the world, I, you know, I, I've heard people talk about pygmies in, in Congo, the way they talk about pygmies in ways that are, it's completely abhorrent that you can stand to, to hear. So, so I think that understanding, just understanding how universal it is and that we all run the risk of doing that is probably the best way to deal with it and to say, okay, where am I doing that? Like, where do I tend to dehumanize? Like, which groups do I tend to see as less than myself? Uh, instead of, so if you do it in yourself, then you'll be more capable of, you know, you'll be have a little more compassion when you see it, others people doing it, even though you don't have to accept it. You don't have to think it's right, but you might understand that, you know, you do that too. So let's, let's be a little, let's, Let's calm down and 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 just try to slowly move towards real relationships. And on that note, that feels a good place to say, Jonathan Pajot, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Thank you. It's really noticeable how people from um, particularly Catholic Christian tradition um, and now I'm realizing Orthodox um, Orthodox Christians when you ask them what's sacred it is they almost always say something um, they always say some, something very straight in that sense of the religious sense of the sacred that actually the Eucharist the um, being in church the mass, I'm thinking back to Frank Cottrell Boyce and Charles Moore and Sora Bamari, for whom that is such a central thing. And I really love the way that Jonathan described it as the transcendent meeting the mundane. What an interesting journey Jonathan has had from a kind of Catholic cultural and parental heritage to parents who converted to evangelical um, Baptist Christianity to his own conversion to being an Orthodox Christian, which um, his wife and his family still don't share. And I was really grateful for him to for opening up about how they navigate that really well by the sound of it. And there's a real thread in him and in lots of the voices that I kind of associate as being part of that conversation, that grouping, that constellation, um, is kind of mysticism and mystery and strangeness and how... Um, a kind of post-enlightenment approach to knowledge, which also shows up in theology. Um, and I'm reminded again, as I often am, of the Ian McGilchrist stuff on different ways of knowing. That uh, the, the, the way of being in the world, the way of knowing, and in the case of Jonathan, the way of um, connecting with his religious practice, it's so important that it's one that doesn't exclude or preclude mystery and mysticism and strangeness and a kind of idiosyncrasies of scripture, the darkness and the light. The I was really struck by his thing saying Christianity is not morality, it's downstream from morality. And when we try and tame it, something goes badly wrong. And Tom Holland says um, similar things. I um, I really recognised his some of his struggles with the culture of contemporary art. I have a few friends in that world. And actually, I think there's lots that is very interesting and challenging and kind of positive in that world as well. But certainly um, until quite recently, the kind of cynical, distanced, critical, 
posture, it's not obviously just in visual art, was very, um, was very dominant. And anything that's earnest and sincere um, or straightforward doesn't have any cultural capital. And I can really see why Jonathan felt he needed to move out of it in order to make work that he calls you know, more direct and more real and also more functional, not just... Um, the, he talks a lot about the fetish... fetish I can't say the word. Fetishization? Fetishization. You know what I mean? Of the art object, um, which I'm not sure I fully understand, but um, yeah, this interest in weaving beautiful things more into our lives and in our uses in that very kind of arts and crafts, John Ruskin way. Um, I was really fascinated by what he said about orthodoxy as less transactional than many forms of Protestant Christianity. It's less kind of Jesus died for your sins by paying off a debt in a ledger um, in, you know, blood instead of money. Um, and this concept of deification, which uh, David Bentley Hart also writes about. Um, and I do think is there's a resurgence in interest in, in the Western church. And then I was really glad to talk to him at the end about, I have, uh, just to be clear, I have concerns about the public conversation and the way we talk to each other and about each other um, across the political spectrum. There are lots of ways in which those that self-describe as progressive, I think, um, are part, can be, some some people who self-describe as progressive can be part of the problem um, in the ways we're driving us us driving our societies apart and the dripping with contempt and being the quick to judge and point a finger is deeply problematic, I think. Um, and this kind of constellation of thinkers who are trying to recapture or reconnect with a more traditionalist or conservative or post-liberal set of ideas, which are mainly men, which I genuinely find fascinating. Um, I also think there are edges of that, which I find very troubling and very contemptuous and very excluding and exclusive um and it was really nice to just reflect a bit with Jonathan on that and how he sees his own place in that and what he's trying to do and the way he's trying to live up to Jesus's call to connect with the stranger and I'm really I really keep thinking about his thing that the left tends to dehumanize people through time and the right tends to dehumanize people through space and probably the best thing to do is rather than point fingers at each other is to reflect as rigorously and as carefully and as honestly as we can about our own temptations. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred with Jonathan Pachot. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. We are edited by Drew Hawley and The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos. Thanks for listening. See you next time.